Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today, you have to analyze what happened five minutes ago. And believe me, that is extremely frustrating. The lightning speed at which the Taliban has continued its advance. On the capital city of Kabul. Taking control of the country happened a lot faster than his administration anticipated. I would just ask people to think about what they're going to be reporting 20 years from now. President Biden recalled the madness of the American involvement in the Vietnam War which was America's longest war before the war in Afghanistan. I'm Rachel Bade. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I graduated from college in 1957. Andy Glass is a contributing editor at Politico. He's been working in journalism ever since the day he graduated, 64 years ago. And I never wanted to do anything else in my life. A lot of people are drawing similarities between the fall of Saigon and the fall of Kabul. But what we're watching now is all subject to change. Andy knows, because he covered the fall of Saigon in 1975. And when he went back 20 years later... In 1995... Something resonated with him. I interviewed the top Vietnamese general. I asked him, why did we, the Americans, lose the war, and why did you, the uh, communist North, win the war? And he paused for just a minute, and he said, you know why? because we wanted it more than you did. And that resonated with me to this day as an answer that rung true. As a political reporter, it's often difficult to know. You know, especially as people who cover things with our nose pressed up against the glass. If you're watching something that's going to define the Biden presidency or that will become old news in just a couple of weeks. You see things all the time in politics that blow up and burn really, really brightly, and then fade just as quickly. No matter how this moment looks two decades from now, it's safe to say this week has been the first true test of the Biden presidency. My colleague Ryan Lizza and I have been watching it very closely. The Biden administration has seemed caught off guard by just how many people, including political allies, call the evacuation from Afghanistan chaotic and bungled. There's not a lot of evidence that a foreign policy decision like this is going to have a long-term impact and certainly not the kind of defining stain on his presidency that a lot of the punditry from the foreign policy establishment that opposes this decision says it would have. You know, we've got all this chaos in Afghanistan and it's happening just as Biden's approval rating has dipped below 50%. He seems to be banking on the fact that pulling out of Afghanistan really resonates with the American public. So he's kept a hard line on defending that pullout, even though there's so much chaos and noise around the issue. What do you make of what we're hearing right now from the White House? I think the reaction from Biden is giving us a glimpse into one of the traits that hasn't really been on display a whole lot this year. I mean, one of the reasons is Biden is not out in public as much as previous presidents. He doesn't do as many events and press conferences and all the rest. But on this, the trait of just his confidence and stubbornness and 
what he's got, tried to get across in the speeches and press conferences that he's done on this issue is he has absolutely no regrets. This was 100% in his view, the right decision. I stand squarely behind my decision. I stand squarely behind my decision. Six words that forever will be seared into the memory of all Americans who have been watching and the unfold. It was inevitable that there would be some messiness at the end. The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, secure Afghanistan. And it was all to be expected, and nobody should second-guess him or his administration. What's happening now could just as easily happen five years ago or 15 years in the future. You have to be honest. On Afghanistan, I mean, he's the first president that I've covered, and I've, uh, you know, I covered Bush, Obama, and Trump making these same decisions on Afghanistan. He's the first one who truly overruled his military advisors and finally said, that's it, zero troops. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan, two Democrats and two Republicans. I will not pass this responsibly on, responsibility on to a fifth president. Obama and Trump, who also had instincts to lower troop levels, always backed down at the end and decided to listen to the Pentagon and keep some troops there. It's one of the reasons that Biden has inherited this, you know, inherited the 2,500 troops is that Trump, at the end of the day, didn't uh, get what he wanted in pulling them all out and left some for Biden to handle. So I think he's he believes that he made this kind of historic, difficult decision that the American public agrees with him on and that he campaigned on. And yeah, there's some bad, you know, I'm sort of caricaturing him right now. This isn't me saying this, but yeah, there's some, you know, ugly shit that went down at the airport at the end. But, you know, that's life and things will be better in the long run. The scenes of chaos and suffering outside the airport in Kabul have quickly become some of the enduring images of the fall of Afghanistan. Dozens of people were scrambling near the entrance to the airport, including women and small children, pleading their cases. Mothers are seen handing their little ones over the fence line there, that wall, to soldiers in desperate attempts to try to get them to safety. I'm deeply saddened by the facts we now face. But I do not regret my decision. I was just going to say, it's almost Trumpian uh, how he has sort of handled this week, right? I mean, this is all the reasons why Trump's base loved him so much. No apologies, no regrets. And Biden was very much taking that same tone this week. I remember right before his speech, I was watching CNN and, and David Axelrod, Obama's former senior advisor at the White House, was sort of saying, you know, he thought Biden should come out to the podium, take responsibility for this bungled pullout. You cannot defend the execution here. This has been a disaster. Make promises about making it right with people who helped us in Afghanistan and who have been left behind. Uh, It's a failure. And he needs to own that failure. He's the commander in chief. And, you know, he did sort of the opposite. He totally pivoted to an issue that a lot of Americans agree with, which is just, you know, the idea of leaving Afghanistan and bringing our troops home. But in many ways, that's sort of a, you know, it's a false choice. It's not really, you know, an indefinite presence versus a messy pullout. And those are the only two options, right? You could have pulled out with more planning. But from a political standpoint, 
he's talking to American voters and he's sort of, you know, betting that if he sticks on message and keeps with this line of specifically just justifying bringing troops home and the pullout that, you know, this will be sort of a black eye that fades uh, in terms of his presidency and, and his long-term legacy. And, you know, we've talked about this all week. It's probably a smart calculation if you look historically at presidents who have brought American troops home, even after the fall of Saigon, their popularity actually actually grows. Uh, President Gerald Ford in 1975, a lot of criticism there with the messy pullout of Vietnam, but, you know, he his approval rating went up. And so in that regard, different things resonate with the American public. And I think Biden is probably making the right political choice to just continue to justify and talk about the pullout as opposed to the drama that we're seeing this week. Absolutely. And I, I think, look, they're used to doing things and ignoring the chorus of, of criticism. It's sort of, it's a point of, of pride for Biden and his advisors, perhaps to a fault. Uh, I think it partly comes out of their campaign experience where they were counted out, you know, especially in the beginning of the primaries. A lot of Democrats dismissed uh, Biden. You mentioned David Axelrod. He was one of them. You know, they had this sort of come from behind victory in the primaries and sort of, you know, really spiked the football after that happened and went back and sort of laughed at all the critics who said they couldn't win. Similarly, with the infrastructure bill, constantly in the press and uh, with others, it was said it was going to it was going to die. And if you, you remember that day, Biden celebrates the infrastructure bill. He actually talks about how he just had he just read a piece of paper with dozens of reporters who said it wouldn't happen. So there's this sense of like, you know, of I told you so, we know what's popular, we know how to get things done, we're constantly being underestimated. And if we really want to, you know, psychoanalyze Biden, this goes back quite a long way in his life and career, whether you're talking about overcoming a stutter or entering his first Senate race at a very young age when everyone said there's no chance uh, he, he would win. So there's a long history here with Biden beating the odds and ignoring critics. And famously, the people around him will dismiss, you know, the complaints on Twitter and on, on cable and stick to what they believe from polling is actually popular with the American public. That's sort of their North Star on a lot of these decisions. Public opinion-wise, the American public turned against this war a long time ago, and that goes for Democrats and Republicans. And not to be cynical, and not that you know public opinion is the only thing that matters, or, or and not that whether this is good or bad for Biden politically is what matters, but I don't think we're going to be talking about this in a few weeks, to be totally honest. Yeah, you mentioned sort of cynical takes. I mean, a lot of Republican lawmakers seem to think that they can hold up these promises that the United States made to Afghan civilians who have helped us, interpreters, translators, people who have helped U.S. troops and who are now left behind and who are more than likely going to find themselves in difficult positions, if not deadly positions, with the Taliban takeover but there's this, yeah, this calculation that, you know, that's not going to resonate with the public, at least not long term. And, you know, it just goes back to what you're saying, Ryan, like, you know, foreign policy issues. It's a lot of times out of sight, out of mind for Americans. And the White House is very much making this bet that as cynical as it sounds, you know, what happens to these Afghans is not going to 
be the thing that, you know, voters look at to determine who they're going to vote for in 2022 or 2024. So, yeah, it's absolutely right. And we've seen, you know, we've seen before, like, it's always difficult in the middle of those episodes to know whether this is something that's going to resonate in in a more than a year from now in a midterm or a few years from now in in a presidential election. And we're always asking that question. And my rule of thumb is is basically like the default position should be no, that whatever it is you're witnessing a year or two out, it's not going to be talked about in the next election. And the issues that are the exception, you really need a strong case uh, uh, for it. So whenever I'm asked that question, my default position is always no. Uh, Rach, just talk a little bit about what you dug into in playbook recently on the sort of contradictions and difficulties that Republicans are are having grappling with this issue and, and using it as a political attack on Biden. Yeah, it seems like Republicans party-wide, they agree that they can try to use this to hurt Biden, whose poll numbers, as we just discussed, are still hovering around 50 percent. But there's a clear divide between more establishment Republicans and Republicans with sort of military backgrounds, hawks, but also just more traditional Republicans who want to talk about this issue as, you know, the United States abandoning allies and sort of what this will mean for people trusting us in the future if we're abandoning people we promised to protect who could die and likely will, you know, die or, or see some sort of hardship now that they're trapped by the Taliban. But then there's this other faction, this Trump wing of the party, that really wants to take over this messaging and sort of make it a base appeal feeding into this immigration culture war. And right now they're sort of arguing that this entire fiasco was intentional on Biden's part and part of this sort of long-term bid by Democrats to bring refugees to the United States to change the body politic. And we're hearing that right now from people like Charlie Kirk, Tucker Carlson, Stephen Miller, a lot of folks who sort of fashion themselves as more MAGA-type Republicans. And so they're very much trying to turn this talking point around. And it's contradicting what a lot of Republicans, this sort of more salient point, I would argue, that people are making this point based on facts, which is that, you know, you're leaving allies behind, but sort of putting this conspiratorial spin on it that's really undermining that talking point. And so, you know, you can see some of the frustration right now with Republicans when they're asked about this on television. They want to hammer Biden for the pullout and for leaving people behind without giving them help. But, you know, hosts are asking about, you know, Stephen Miller says, blah, blah, blah. Stephen Miller says, you know, this was intentional. And it was so interesting to hear former senior advisor to President Trump, Stephen Miller, last night say the U.S. doesn't owe these people anything. And so it's distracting from the point that they want to hammer over and over again. This has been to me one of the wildest things to watch in all of this. It's like how this foreign policy decision gets refracted into the weird, unsettled debates in the Republican Party between the, you know, MAG world and the never Trump world, right? Because the never Trump world is the sort of locus of stay in Afghanistan opinion, right? People like Liz Cheney, Tom Cotton, Tom Cotton, Kinzinger, right? And, and they're not just mad about what happened at the airport and that the evacuation seems like it was not well planned. 
they didn't like Trump's decision to draw down the troops. They didn't like Biden's decision to stick with that. If, if they had their way, we'd have a lot more troops in Afghanistan, although I don't hear a lot of them specifically saying that because they, they know that's not exactly the most popular thing in the world. And it's been really fascinating to see some of the MAGA folks seem to jump on that argument in the beginning just because it was like that was the weapon at hand to attack Biden with, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden when when people realized, oh, wait a second, we're talking about the necessity of airlifting these people out and we're criticizing Biden for getting that wrong. Oh, wait, they might come to the United States. Now we're backed into this corner of of supporting welcoming refugees. It like suddenly turned. It was like almost like a day where you started to see that argument flip. Yeah. You know, the best example of it was the Trump statements this week. Yes. I mean, yeah, take us through that. How did he handle this? So on Monday, I think it was, Trump basically, you know, blasted Biden, said we should ensure that these Afghans who helped American troops should be able to seek refuge in the United States, protect them, bring them out of the situation. And then, you know, there was this picture that started going viral. Yep. I'm sure you saw it of about 600 Afghan civilians who were sort of jammed into this tiny, well, not tiny, large American aircraft, but literally shoulder to shoulder smushed in into this plane. And Trump retweeted it and said that this should be Americans who are on this, America first, and sort of basically criticizing the fact that we were evacuating Afghan civilians, which is exactly what he was pushing for earlier in the week. And clearly what happened is you know, as you were saying, the initial gut reaction was to go with this traditional Republican talking point. And then within 24, 48 hours, the MAGA wing of the party sort of took over this messaging. And Trump very much followed what what a lot of his favorite TV personalities were saying, which is criticizing this idea of bringing Afghan refugees to the United States. And I also think it speaks to this sort of perhaps realization amongst some Republicans that the traditional Republican attack is not going to resonate with the broader public for very long. Perhaps what we're seeing is like the MAGA wing decide that since that's not going to resonate, they're just going to try to feed the base, right? How can they turn this into something that they can talk about that will, you know, throw some red meat to the base? And I think that's, it's sort of interesting. Like, clearly they don't think the other message is going to resonate. So they're twisting it. Totally. And like, I think they might be right, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're on pretty solid ground, not letting the foreign policy debate be turned over to, frankly, the this Cheney wing, right? That was the wing that Trump beat and proved was unpopular, the kind of forever war wing, right? That became the position of Democrats and Republicans because the public was sick of the war. And I, I do wonder, one of the things we haven't really talked about is whether that affects what Biden does here in any way. Not only that, but I mean, they also have to consider the criticism they're getting from their own party on this, too. So they can't just listen to the, you know, the Trump wing of the party on this. We've seen this week three Democratic chairmen in the Senate say they're going to investigate this. And yeah. both, you know, the, the intelligence failure... But also sort of, you know, what happens from here on out, you know, if if Afghans who help the United States are getting murdered, you know, we're going to see some oversight on that. I think, you know, Democrats have been very behind the White House since Democrats took over Washington. The party's been pretty united in terms of policy. They've had some disputes, but this is the first time we've actually hearing Democrats on the Hill criticize the Biden White House and say they mucked this up. And so, yes, I mean, clearly Biden is going to be in a difficult position because 
He's going to be getting hit by Republicans, specifically MAGA Republicans, who are going to blast him for bringing refugees and using this anti-immigration rhetoric as like a fodder for the base. But then also Democrats and more than a few Republicans, traditional Republicans, who want the opposite take and actually want to do oversight on this and are watching very closely. So it's going to potentially be a difficult few weeks for Biden on this. And since we're going back to Biden, I want to talk to you a little bit about some spillover effect we might see from this. I mean, Ryan, what do you think could this affect, you know, the bipartisan uh, infrastructure deal? Could it affect this huge $3.5 trillion reconciliation package that Democrats want to pass in the coming weeks? Is there any connectivity here? I'm skeptical so far that it's going to spill over. You know, there's this side drama going on right now in the House. You know, on Monday, the House is going to come back and we'll have the first votes on the budget and the infrastructure bill and and voting rights. And there are some moderate Democrats who are threatening to vote against the budget unless they get the infrastructure bill passed on its own and, and, and right away. And some of them are arguing that, you know, given Biden's recent political difficulties, and they'll point to Afghanistan, that's sort of a, a, a new quiver they've shot, that Biden needs a win now, that he's politically suffering. And the, uh, the, the news from Afghanistan makes it really important that he's just got to like pass some piece of his legislative agenda in its final version and celebrate that. And then these guys, you know, during their, what's left of their August recess, uh, can go back home and talk about it in their districts. So that's sort of the, the band of moderate Democrats that wants the infrastructure bill cleared through the House and onto Biden's desk without waiting for the larger, um, reconciliation bill that won't, you know, that won't be finished until the fall. That's what they're saying right now. And, Frankly, as you know, Rachel, because you cover the House really closely, it doesn't seem to be having a whole lot of resonance with Nancy Pelosi. And it's not like the White House has backed their strategy. So that, that's one place where you could, you know, theoretically, it, it could have spilled over, but it looks like it's not happening. You know, those moderates, though, they're always going to be looking for the president to stay popular and that'll help them keep them afloat in the midterms. So, it, you know, and right now the Biden brand is pretty solid. We've seen in the Democratic primaries, the Biden candidates beating the non-Biden candidates. So, so far, I don't really see the spillover effects. One caveat, as you point out, there are, it does look like there are going to be hearings about this and an investigation and that'll keep it kicking around. And you never know what, um, once Congress starts asking questions and if they get to the point of subpoenaing things, if suddenly the administration looks like they didn't tell the truth about the intelligence or stuff like that, you know, so there are potential landmines going forward. Great, Ryan. I think we're out of time. This was great. All right. Thanks, Rachel. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmet. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Mike Sappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll take you behind the scenes of Capitol Hill again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Rachel Bade. Thanks for listening.